0: Today we have the special privilege of welcoming a blessed and awesome guest speaker here today, Reverend Dr. Stephen Elliott. Now, just before he takes the stage, there's a few things you need to know about Reverend Dr. Stephen Elliott. He's got lots of different titles. He serves as a professor on the faculty at Kingswood University in New Brunswick. He has pastored churches and planted churches He's the president of our national church, of the Wesleyan Church of Canada, but I think the, his most favorite title at the moment is Grandpa, I believe. So would you join me in welcoming in a fresh sea C-wo- road sea way, um, Dr. Stephen Elliott as he communicates to us today. Isn't it interesting how two people can hear the exact same sentence and interpret it exactly opposite from one another? I mean, I'm not talking just a little bit different. They actually hear it word-for-word, polar opposite from one another. For instance, the classic one is this one. The mother-in-law is coming for two weeks. And the grandkids go, yeah, grandma's coming for two weeks. And somebody else in the house goes... Oh, my mother-in-law is coming for two weeks. Or a more serious note, how about this one? The doctor says, you're pregnant. To the 26-year-old girl that's married and wanting to start a family, this is happy news. Woohoo! I'm pregnant. The exact same phrase, you're pregnant, to a 14-year-old girl or a 47-year-old lady, not happy news. The lawyer says to you, you just inherited $500. Most of us in the room will go, all right, $500. Now I can put gas in my car. (laughs) But if you're the son or daughter of a multimillionaire and you were anticipating getting $250,000 and the lawyer said, you just inherited $500, you'd hear that as a slap in the face. One more. You're driving in a car, somebody else is driving, and the driver says, oh, the sign says 20 more minutes to the next rest stop. Most of the people in the car goes 20 more minutes to the next rest stop. But if you're the person in the car that has to go to the bathroom right now, (laughs) 20 more minutes is going to sound like an eternity to you. You say, okay, so why are you telling us this? Some of you may know that Helen and I, uh, each spring and each fall, we read through a significant portion of the New Testament or the Old Testament, and then we sit at the kitchen table and we journal what it is that we're hearing from God's Word. This past spring, we were in the Old Testament, and Helen, that particular evening, was at the, the, the kitchen table, and she was reading, and I was getting ready to journal. And as she was reading through Daniel chapter 5, which is where we're going to start, and we're going to get into Judges in a few minutes, but if you've got your Bible, Daniel chapter 5, Helen's reading in Daniel chapter 5, and she reads a particular phrase, and I remember sitting at the kitchen table and thinking, boy, you could understand that phrase two very, very different ways. So let me give you the context of what's going on. The book of Daniel, you would know that Daniel was a young lad, and he was taken as a prisoner of war uh, by the Babylonians. And So the Babylonians committed in and slaughtered a whole bunch of Israelites and taken over the nation. But King Nebuchadnezzar said, Find the biggest and brightest and youngest and smartest and most capable of the people and bring them back into Babylon as captives. So Daniel was a group of, part of a group of young men that were brought back into Babylon. Uh, never again is he going to go back home. And never, doesn't know anything about the culture, doesn't know anything about the people, doesn't know anything about the language, he knows nothing. It would be like your son or your grandson being taken as a prisoner of war to North Korea, never to come back to Canada again. Doesn't know the language, doesn't know the people, knows nothing. And so this is really intimidating to this young lad, probably about 13 or 14 years of age. But the hand of God is on him. And he finds favor with people. And he begins to rise through the ranks of the political leadership in Babylon. And eventually he becomes what we would call a premier of a province or a governor of a state. Now decades have gone by. By the time of Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is now an old man. So he was about 13 or 14 when he came to Babylon. He's now about 80 years of age. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king that had brought him as a prisoner of war, is now dead. His grandson is now the reigning monarch. His name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar has got a serious problem on his hand. The serious problem is this, is that now the nation of Babylon, they themselves are being invaded by the Medes and Persians. As a matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 5, the Medes and Persian army has now surrounded the capital city of Babylon, trying to get inside to conquer the capital city. And for some unknown reason, Belshazzar thinks this is a great time to throw a party. The so scripture is very clear. He invites a thousand of his best friends, the political leaders, the, the military leaders. They come to the palace. There's this blowout party. I mean, alcohol is flowing. The, there's music. There's dancing girls. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. And partway through this party with this thousand people, he decides to do something else that's kind of odd. He says, do I remember when we invaded that nation of Israel, do I remember, was there something like golden goblets or something that we took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon? And the guy says, yes. He says, go find them, get them out of the storage and bring them here. We want to fill up those golden goblets that were dedicated to the worship of God, and we're going to toast our gods with them. So they run off, they find the golden goblets that have been dedicated to the worship of God, fill them up with alcohol pass them out, people are toasting and drinking, and all of a sudden, Scripture is really clear what happens next. Suddenly, in plain view of a thousand people, this hand from heaven shows up and inscribes into the plaster of the wall four words. King Belshazzar is totally freed. Everybody sees this. This is not a drunken stupor. This isn't a vision. This is something that he sees with all these thousand people. And scripture says his knees began to knock and he's quivering and shaking. He turns pale. He says, what what, what do those four words mean? Nobody can interpret. Call the wisest people. Come and interpret. If anybody can interpret those four words, well, I'll make him the third highest ruler in the nation and give him a royal robe and all kinds of money. Nobody can interpret the words that have been inscribed into the wall in plain sight of everybody. Belshazzar's grandmother, King Nebuchadnezzar's wife, hears of the ruckus in the palace. and she comes into the palace, she sees the four words up there. Belshazzar says, nobody can interpret these four words for me. And his grandmother says, there's a man in Babylon that can It's like the spirit of the gods is on him. He'll be able to interpret those words and tell you what they're. His name is Daniel. Go bring him out of retirement. He's like 80 years of age. Bring him out of retirement. Bring him in here. He'll be able to read those words. So Daniel was brought into the palace, thousand people. Everybody has, this party has now come to a screeching halt. What do those words mean? Daniel, if you can interpret them, you'll be the third highest in the land. I'll give you royal robes and money. Daniel says, keep it. I want nothing to do with that kind of stuff. Yes, I can interpret those words. So Daniel begins to rehearse a little bit of the story of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar's dealings with God. And begins to tell the story of what Nebuchadnezzar had learned about dealing with God. And now, these are the words that Daniel says to Belshazzar. Let's bring them up on the screen, please. But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this about your grandfather. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, drank wine to them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you, and here's the phrase that when Helen read it at suppertime that night, when I heard, I thought, well, you can understand this two very different ways. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life And all your ways. The God who holds in his hand. Your life. And all of your ways. And as Belshazzar hears that phrase being said. He hears it. As an ominous threat. If I can interpret it into plain English. It would go something like this. Belshazzar. God has the ability and the right to squash you like a bug. You better clean up your act right away. Belshazzar understands that if you get on the wrong side of the king, that the king has the right to take your life. Now, we who live in democratic societies, we we have a hard time with this. Justin Trudeau can't take our lives, or Biden or somebody can't take our lives just on on his own whim. But 3,000 years ago, in Babylon, you get on the wrong side of the king. You do something that's offensive to the king. As a matter of fact, Daniel had just said that to Belshazzar. He says, you remember your grandfather? Your grandfather, boy, if somebody got on the wrong side, if he wanted to end his life, snap, he just just ended his life. If he wanted to promote somebody, he promoted somebody. If he wanted to, to do something for somebody, if he wanted to destroy somebody's life, he could just do that. In the same way, Belshazzar, you get on the wrong side of the God of the universe, he holds your life and all of your ways in his hands. And Belshazzar intuitively knows he has offended the God of the universe. So who is this Belshazzar guy? So as he hears this phrase, your life and all of your ways are held in God's hand, how, who is this guy that hears it as an ominous threat? So I went through and I read everything I could find in Scripture about Belshazzar. And here's what I discovered. Belshazzar was arrogant, he misused power and position, he was proud, he was a drunk, he was irresponsible, he was sacrilegious, he desecrated what should have been treated with reverence, he was careless, he was disobedient, he was self-confident, he was mocking, he was presumptuous, he was unwilling to learn, and he presumed upon God's mercy. This phrase, the hand of God, is used dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the Bible. The hand of God is being used as a metaphor for the omnipotence of God, the power of God, the right of God, that if he wants to do something, who can stop God? The God who stretches out his hand and touches side to side in the universe, who holds all the waters of the world as if they're little droplets in his hand, who holds the islands of the world like Greenland and England and Prince Edward Island. He holds them all like little grains of sand right here. If God chooses to do something with his hand, who can stop him? In one of the passages, it talks about the Jewish people escaping out of Egypt and going towards the promised land. It says that God used his hand to part the Red Sea. When the people of Ashdod, in the Old Testament, took the Ark of the Covenant, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, out of the temple in Jerusalem, and they brought it and put it into the temple of their God, It says, the hand of God was against the people of Ashdod, and all the people broke out in tumors and died. The hand of God. In the New Testament, Paul and Silas are preaching, and a sorcerer is mocking and ridiculing people and trying to turn them away from God. And finally, Paul's had it up to here, and he swings around and he looks at the sorcerer and he says, The hand of God is against you. And immediately, this guy goes blind. Now, you're in a study in the book of Judges these days. Right now, we're up to Judges chapter 9. And there's this guy in Judges chapter 9. His name is Ambibelech. Ambibelech is actually the son of who you heard about last week, Gideon. But Ambiblek is like one of the worst of the worst people in the Bible. There is nothing in Scripture, just like Belshazzar, there is nothing positive to say about Ambimelech. The very first thing we read in Judges chapter 9 about Abimelech is that he slaughters 70 of his own immediate family members. That's the first thing, and then it goes downhill from there. On two occasions, he takes buildings, and he puts children and women in them, and sets fire to them, and burns them alive. He wages war, and there's thousands of people dying all over the place. This is a real piece of work, this guy of Abimelech living his life as if his life and all of his ways are not in God's hands, as if he can get away with this kind of stuff and that God doesn't see and God's just going to turn a blind eye to who he is. The hand of God that is so frequently referenced in the Bible that a Latin phrase began to be used, dextra domini, slide up there please, dextra domini, It's the dominant hand of God, the the powerful right hand of God. If God chooses to do something, who can stop him? The passage in Jeremiah, I've always thought about that passage where it says that that we're the clay and we're in the potter's hands. I've always interpreted that as a positive passage. Until I went back and I reread it again as I was getting ready for this message. And that passage in Jeremiah where it says you're a piece of clay and I'm a piece of clay and we're in God's hands, it's actually not a positive passage. If God wants to squash you and throw you away, he has every right to do that. In the book of Job, pity the person who falls into the hands of God. And perhaps the most famous sermon that ever has been preached in Christendom outside of the Bible is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. So when Daniel says your life and all of your ways are in God's hands, Belshazzar hears it as an ominous threat. And Abimelech should be hearing this. He should be mindful because Gideon was his dad, a a godly person. But Abimelech just goes crazy, vicious, treacherous individual. So Belshazzar hears this phrase My life and all my ways are in God's hands. He hears it as an ominous threat. But I started this message by saying, isn't it interesting how two people can hear the exact same phrase and hear it differently? Because somebody else was there when that phrase was said. And it was Daniel. And when Daniel hears this phrase, my life and all of my ways are in God's hands, he doesn't hear it as an ominous threat. He hears it as a comforting and assuring promise. (sighs) My life and all my ways are in God's hands. Next slide, please. You see, his lived experience was very, very different than Belshazzar or Mbimelech. And while it's true that most of the references in the Bible to the hand of God are negative... Some are very positive, like these verses right here. Next slide, please. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand, Jesus said. God doesn't hold you like that, just looking for an opportunity to drop you. God holds you like this if you're one of his children. There's a sense of security. Okay, I'm in God's hands. I've engraved you onto the palm of my hand. That's how much he loves us. Now, I'm 68. I'm too old to start getting tattoos. But not too long ago, I was sitting at a supper table with somebody and and the person that was seated to my left was right here. And I just glanced over and I happened to notice that they have tattooed onto their hands the names of their children. God loves us so much, he's engraved our names onto his hand. The good hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. You see, Daniel's experience with God wasn't like Belshazzar's. You remember he came as a prisoner of war to Babylon? Never to go back home again. Doesn't know the language, doesn't know any of the people. Talk about a scary thing for a 13-year-old. All your families are probably dead by now because of the war. And you're in a place you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know the geography, you don't know the currency, you don't know anybody, and you're, you're under the king that has just slaughtered everybody that you knew. And yet, the hand of God was on him. And he finds favor with people. And he begins to rise through the ranks and the the ranks of the government. And he becomes a political leader in this foreign nation. And later on, when people do turn against him, and they say, take Daniel and throw him into the lion's den... The hand of God is quite capable of shutting the mouths of the lions. And when they take his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the fiery furnace, the hand of God is able to keep them safe. So I did the same thing with Daniel that I did with Belshazzar and Abimelech. I said, so who is this guy Daniel that when he hears the phrase, My life and all my ways are in God's hands. He doesn't hear it as an ominous threat like Belshazzar. He hears it as a comforting promise. So I looked up everything I could find in Scripture about Daniel, and this is what I wrote down. Daniel was reverent, spirit-filled, wise, spiritually gifted, not motivated by power, position, prestige, or wealth. He was God-fearing, a praying man, a gentle, mindful of where he came from, a worshiper. He praised and thanked God. He was not corruptible. He would not take bribes. He was self-deprecating, servant-hearted, had an exalted view of God. He helped others. He was respectful, fasted, and when he needed to be, he was repentant. He hears, my life is in God's hands, as a comforting, assuring promise. Belshazzar hears it, as an ominous threat so let me ask you this question can the same set of hands be both a threat and a comfort if you come from a functional household you know that's true i'm not talking about if you had some weird parents that, do, that were terrible parents i'm talking if you came from a normal functional household you know the same set of hands can be both a comfort and a threat I have made no secret of it. I was not the easiest kid to raise in this world. I ran away from home dozens of times as a little kid. As a matter of fact, I ran away from home so many times that my mom had a harness built with a buckle on the back and a rope attached to it that she tied to the front tree in the front yard and I could run around the tree like a dog. Why? Because one time she found me, if you know the city of Belleville and Victoria Avenue, one time when I was little, she found me sitting on the yellow line with traffic going by on each side of me. Another time she couldn't find me and one of the neighbors says, I just was in downtown Belleville. I saw Stephen in one of the stores. Like I'm a little tiny kid. It's no wonder she tied me to a tree. (laughs) And I stole stuff. I don't know how my mom caught me. I was a little kid. I stole a chocolate bar from a corner store. Somehow my mom caught me. She marched me back to that store owner, made me stand in front of him, cry my little tears out, and tell them what I had done and pay for the chocolate bar. A little bit older, I stole a bicycle. Had to give it back too. When I was a little bit older, I was up at Silver Lake Campgrounds. I don't remember this. My mom tells the sto- all these horror stories on me. And uh, one of our neighbors was re-shingling their their cottage. and, And so there was a pile of broken shingles on the ground. I was up and I picked up the broken shingles. And I was throwing them like frisbees. And I saw this lady going by. And I wondered if I could hit her with a shingle. And I threw the shingle at her. And it flew. And it cut her right across the top of her eye. Did not blind her. I was a real handful to raise. Yes, you can still become national superintendent of the Wesleyan Church if you've got a troubled kid. But I'll tell you, when I got on the wrong side of my mom, my mom had a pink hairbrush. <laughs> and she would come at me, and she would say, Stephen, hold out your hand. And I don't care if you believe in corporal punishment or not. This is my story. And I would stand in front of my mom, and she would say, hold out your hand. And I'd hold out my little trembling hand. She would grab my wrist with her other hand. she would take that pink hairbrush, and she would go, you've got to learn not to do that, 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 that. And I would cry until the tw- when I was 12 and she spanked me for the last time and I laughed all the way through it. That did not impress my mom. I was afraid of my mom and her hand and the little pink hairbrush. But when I smashed my two front teeth, these are not real teeth at the front of my face here. When I smashed my teeth as a little boy, And I picked up the broken pieces of my teeth and I can remember running home to my mom running into the kitchen. And I remember my mom getting down on her knees and I was crying. I said, Mom, will my teeth grow back? And she said, no, honey, those were your second teeth. You're never going to grow back again. And I remember my mom taking her fingers like this and wiping away my tears. And when I got older and somebody would bully me she would tell me and rub my back and tell me it's going to be okay. And When some girl would break my heart, and she would tell me it's going to be okay. You'll find somebody eventually that will like you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I remember this. Some of you are going to find this hard, but I actually remember this. When I was a little boy, um, I had serious, serious lung problems. I've got pneumonia right now as I'm speaking, but when I was a little tiny boy... Um, I lived in an oxygen steam tent type of a thing. And I can remember this waxy paper thing over top of this thing. And I can remember my mom reaching her hand in, just rubbing my little back. Can the same set of hands be both a threat and a comfort? Oh, yeah. Here's what I know. The more we resemble the Belshazzar's and the Abimelech's in life, the more we hear my life is in God's hands as a threat. Next slide. The more that we resemble the Daniel's of this life and the Gideon's of this life, the more we hear my life is in God's hands as a comforting assurance. Now I need to finish these two stories. God rode into the wall and Belshazzar says, who can read this thing? And Daniel says, you've got on the wrong side of God. Do you know what happens at the end of Daniel chapter 5? That very night, Daniel, are you in the room here? Where are you? That very night Belshazzar... Babylonians was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Isn't that interesting? That very night that God wrote on the wall and God's, Daniel says you're on the wrong side of God. That very night the Medes and Persians broke through and killed him. But there was somebody else inside the city when the Medes and Persians broke through. And it was Daniel. So what happened when the Medes and Persians broke through? They killed Belshazzar. But Daniel, what did they do for Daniel? It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Isn't it interesting? That the same army that invaded into the city of Babylon killed Belshazzar, but they took 80-year-old Daniel and they promoted him. The same thing that was a threat to one person actually was a blessing to the other person. So what about Ambimelech? This guy in Judges chapter 9. I mean, he's a real piece of work. I wrote down the stuff about him too. What's he like? Abimelech. Cunning, deceitful, greedy, godless, violent, murder, power-hungry, treacherous, an arsonist, prideful, easily offended, easily angered. He's living as if his life is not in God's hands. As if God's just going to ignore all this evil stuff that's been done. And what happens at the end of Judges chapter 9? Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. That very night, both Belshazzar and Abimelech are being held in God's hands. And they rightfully need to hear it as a threat. The more you resemble the Belshazzars and Abimelechs of this life, the more you need to hear your life is in God's hands in all of your ways. You need to hear that as a warning. But the more you resemble the Daniels and the Gideons of this life, you look like these kind of guys. What did we hear about Gideon last week? Gideon goes up against the Midian army But Gideon's life and all of his ways are in God's hands. Thousands of Midianite soldiers. Gideon's got an army of 300 and all they've got is some pots and flames and a trumpet and they go against this army of thousands and they win? Why? Because his life is in God's hands. Daniel gets promoted to one of the third highest in the land again even at age 80. Gideon Not only wins this battle, but in the story of Gideon that you heard last week, there's this little phrase that under Gideon's reign, the nation of Israel had 40 years of peace and good government. I don't know who this message is for this morning. The more your life looks like the Gideons and the Daniels of this life, the more you need to know God's got your back. You could be in a strange land these days. Maybe you've just recently moved to Brockville from who knows where. Or maybe there's something else that's going on. Circumstances of life have dramatically changed. Maybe there's been the death in your family. Maybe it's a financial problem. Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's a health issue. The more you look like the Daniels and good and Gideons of this life, you need to know God's got you there's a comforting assurance God's got my back but if you happen to be on that left hand side up there and you find yourself living in such a way that you're offending the God of the universe you need to hear your life and all of your ways are in God's hands And you need to hear it as an ominous warning. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, God gave Belshazzar, and God gave Abimelech a little window of opportunity to get right with him. If we're offending a holy God of the universe, his dextra dominee, his dominant right hand of God, he has every right to deal with us in any way that he wants to. But if we're a Daniel or a Gideon, we can go, my life and all my ways are in God's hands. Father, I don't know who this message is for. Um, There could be somebody here that they're playing a very dangerous game with the God of the universe. Uh, The way that they're living is offensive to you. It's hurtful. There's treachery and deceit. Uh, There's an arrogance. There's living like there's no accountability, there's a godlessness. And you gave Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Abimelech a little warning. And you said, you need to get right with me. You cannot be living this way. I am the God and judge, and I am the king of the universe. And I have every right to deal with you as a potter deals with a little piece of clay. But for somebody else, Lord, that may be in the room, and they find themselves in a strange period of time, and it's scary. must have been really scary for Daniel. 13 year old kid in a country he doesn't know the language everything that was secure and known has just been ripped out from under him and you speak into his life as well and you say it's okay your life and all of your ways are in my hands and even if there's a massive army coming against us like there was against Gideon it's okay God's got your back. For those that need to be comforted by my life is in God's hands, may they be comforted. And for those that need to be warned, help us to heed the warning. And all God's people said, Amen.